Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. The next 35 minutes, we are going to talk to Paul Shorty of Shorty Research. Now, Paul has spent over 30 years in finance in Asia at the top level. So he's seen a lot come and go, a lot of changes. So Paul's going to help us understand what is going on in Asia right now. We're going to talk about innovation, especially in the financial services space, the emergence of players like Alibaba, Tencent, WeChat, obviously, Grab. You know, what are they doing to disrupt the banking sector in Asia? What does that mean for financial services? What does it mean for Asia in general? We'll also talk about blockchain and what that will do to the Asian economies. And we'll also help understand the future by looking back at the past, the emergence of powerhouses like General Electric in the US in the late 19th century, and the parallels between that part of history and where we are right here, right now, with the emergence of China. So sit back and relax. Enjoy this conversation with Paul Shorty from Shorty Research. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown, joined in the ATP virtual studio by Paul Shorty of Shorty Research. Paul, welcome to the show. Uh, good afternoon. Great to have you here. We're going to talk about, well, a number of things, obviously, fintech, financial services. You've been in for a number of years in the Asian markets, as well as the emerging technologies such as blockchain as well as the emergence of Asia over the last 30 years. Maybe we can start by talking a little bit about what you do, Shorty Research. You're the founder and editor. What, what do you do over there? So we work with uh, large um, long-only funds. We work with sovereign wealth funds. We work with hedge funds. We work with insurance companies who manage large, um, large funds. And we advise them on both public uh, equities and private equities in the area of financials and uh, financial technology. Mm. What's good, what's hot, what's not, what's to avoid, what's you know coming up, what to buy, what to sell. Right. I mean, you've been in the market for long enough. You've been in 30 years in Asia. You came here way back in the late 80s, so you've seen a lot of change. How would you, I mean, if you could, I know it's a bit of an ambush question, but do your best. I mean, how would you describe where we are in Asia right now in 2018? I mean, if you look at where we are with banking, financial services, fintech, and the emergence of new technologies? So I would say that in all the work that we've done in looking at, you know, a very deep dive into the top five companies in China and the top five companies in the U.S., um, and then comparing it to uh, every, everything in the emerging markets, I'll give you a couple of examples. Mm. There is no more uh, omnipresent cloud service in the Far East than AliCloud. AliCloud mm. did not exist, you know, seven years ago. Uh, AliCloud, Alibaba, and Amazon are now going at each other, you know, full on as, you know, global competitors all over the Far East, including a major, you know, battle royale in India. Uh, and so these companies, you know, really weren't on the, the Alibaba wasn't even listed, you know, four mm. years ago, right? And so there's been this explosion in technological prowess, uh, R&D, uh, a lot of uh, advancement in complex technologies like uh, quantum <laughs> quantum communications, uh, quantum computing, 
com- e-commerce payments, uh, you know, all kinds of lifestyle, uh, the delivery of lifestyle uh, um, uh, services, preferences, goods and services uh, throughout the Far East to, you know, two billion people mm. in ways that the U.S. hasn't even started to deliver yet. I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we've always sort of grown up with the narrative of the, the innovation coming out of California, for example, and still very much so it dominates in technical innovation. But now we're starting to see, like you mentioned, Alibaba as a player. I mean, it didn't start out as a fintech player, but it could possibly be one of the most decisive brands or you know uh, fintech providers in that space coming out of nowhere. And I wonder... Do you think that's a particularly Asian thing or, you know, the fact that they have come in with a different mindset or a lack of legacy? Why do you think, for example, when you look at Alibaba or you look at WeChat, Tencent, for example, and their payment systems, that why are they so advanced? Well, so I think that if you look at like GE 100 years ago, you know, uh, when it when it began to develop in the, you know, uh, from like 1900 up until 1950, you know, nobody in Europe had ever, ever heard of GE. Mm. And it suddenly becomes this, you know, extraordinary company, which is inventing everything left, right and center. And that's just part of, you know, a, a you know, a certain time in history when certain kinds of companies uh, become dominant. And I think that that, you know, Alibaba is kind of the new the new version of, of uh, GE. Then you look at Disney, look at, at a company like Disney, which you know came out of nowhere in the 30s. And by the 60s, it was all over the world. Mm. Right. And, and I, I think Alibaba is kind of a combination of um, of the old, you know, uh, Citibank of the 1950s and Disney. Wow. You know, where, where Citibank was everywhere, Disney was everywhere, all of a sudden, uh, you know, after the war. Mm. And what we see now is basically that Alibaba is a lifestyle company, right? It's much more than a financial services company. It's a lifestyle company, which offers, you know, r- r- remarkable sets of, of goods and services. I did a comparison of Alibaba in India with Standard Chartered and, uh, you know, HSBC. And of the, like, 22 services that Standard Chartered office off- offers, you know, um, HSBC and Standard Chartered only offer three, wow. which is basically, you know, lending services, deposit services and um, insurance. And so so what you have is Amazon and Alibaba leaving a lot of these traditional Commonwealth banks in, in the dust, you know, uh, in terms of what they're able to offer in Southeast Asia, not just in China, mm-hmm. but in Southeast Asia and India and increasingly in Europe. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about your new book in a minute, Paul. But before we get to that, the point you've raised, I mean, a fascinating sort of parallel with GE. If you talk about where we were in the late 19th century, obviously the media landscape was very different in terms of how that was documented. But I wonder how that was viewed by the old world. I know you said that, that most people didn't even know about them then. But how how do you think the old world would have pictured the rise of GE? And Were there parallels between the way that the West sort of portrays the rise of Alibaba and all those sort of internet players in yeah. China? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, Jack Ma, up until, you know, five years ago, was seen as kind of a, a skinny weirdo, and what is this guy <laughs> doing? And he said he says he has a communications company, and, and an, it's, it, he'd said in 2004, I am building an information company, and everybody's like, what in the hell are you talking about? Mm. And he said this in 2004, 14 years ago, and so it, it is very similar. People thought Thomas Edison was out of his mind digging up South Manhattan, to install electricity into homes. People thought he was out of his mind. 
and and so you know when GE was created, you know they were taking away the entire business of whale oil, kerosene. Uh, those those industries were gone by mm. 1915, right? So in the course of 15 years, you know Boston and Nantucket and Cape Cod was built on whale oil, mm. and and those. Uh, places became ghost towns as electricity was created. And I don't think very many people in the whale oil industry were helping Thomas Edison build a dynamo in southern Manhattan when he was uh, installing electricity. So so we see a lot of banks that are very resistant to getting into bed with Alibaba and Tencent all over the Far East. And I think it's been a uh, a huge mistake not Mm. to um, not to twist the arms of the regulators and have a have a grown-up discussion with regulators and force them to get into bed with Alibaba, Tencent, whatever, Baidu, Amazon. Uh, and instead, uh, these guys have done an end run around uh, banking and banking services and also insurance companies hmm. and have created, you know, full, you know, a full suite of everything, right? It's not just... Um, you know, banking and and uh, payments and um, e-commerce. It's it's lifestyle, education, prayer, meditation, uh, movies, tickets, uh, plane tickets, travel. Uh, you know, um, aspiration, education, mm. everything. Right, and and so increasingly, the the, the one stop shop is becoming a full service. You know, lifestyle company which includes all financial services, mm-hmm. and the banks have just not been with the program you know, in any way, shape or form uh, in this regard. And, you know, I'm nervous, you know, for some of the Commonwealth banks who are in these emerging market, traditional emerging market structures where uh, that don't have a legacy. Right. And and this is where these things can get built overnight, Mm. as you and I discussed earlier. Mm. It's the challenge here, though, that the you've talked about the, the the financial tech stocks like the Alibabas, the Ten Cents, the Grabs, I suppose, even that they yeah indeed they they can you know they're making fast progress and they're they're eating the the lunch of the banks. But the problem is with the banks is that the for them from their perspective the change is slow. You know from where they're sort of viewing their you know their their industry, it's uh, you know in the sense that there's no sort of like decisive tipping point at which they can say oh look everything's changed you know it, it's a very slow in, incursion on their business isn't it so that they don't have you know it's that old saying of putting a frog in the boiling water isn't it it would jump straight yes. back. but if you turn up the temperature slowly you know it will boil to death and i think that was a, an analogy used quite well and often in the the japanese economy the post-bubble economy of the 90s right that how would japan get itself out of this situation well because the the decline was so slow, it couldn't do anything. And eventually, you know, had the lost decade and so on. Where, where are we with the banks? Are they, you know, uh, do you foresee a future where the banks will onboard these financial tech stocks and there'll be that sort of assimilation of them? Or do you see a situation where, like you talked about with, in Nantucket with the, the whale businesses, you know, will they, will they be put out of business? Well, so I think that, well, so what we have, uh, I did a comparison yesterday in my research, you know, what we have is the banks are, the banks have uh, three or four problems. One is, you know, they, they just don't have the capital, they don't have the, the retained earnings, um, the accumulated profits to spend the way that Alibaba, Tencent, you know, uh, Amazon, you know, even Walmart, you know, entering into a lot of these financial services have, you know, these guys can throw billions, um, you know, uh, at a pop. Uh, into these um, 
into these investments. And, and HSBC's spend is about $1.8 billion, and Standard Chartered is a very tiny fraction of that. The fundamental problem with the banks is shareholders. The shareholders demand a dividend, and mm. the shareholders of Amazon and, and uh, Alibaba and Tencent get zero dividend, right? Because all the money is poured into investments, and this is a big difference in where these guys are going. And so, so I've I, I've said to some of these banks at, at their meetings with their board of directors, you need to retrain your uh, shareholders to have a lower dividend payout, or you're going to just left be left mm. behind anyway, anyway, because you won't have any money. To assimilate, or build, or or expand, or or even if you want to cherry pick, you know, any of these four strategies uh, are impossible because you're 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 paying out 30, 50 percent of your profits are being paid out in uh, a dividend. The third problem is that um, you know that that these guys, uh, Alibaba and you know a Amazon and and all these other characters, you know, uh, Tencent and. And companies like this have a price to book of like seven, eight, nine times book. They can use stock mm. to buy. And uh, the banks have got a price to book of below. They're, they're trading below book. So if they want to use stock, you know, they're they're destroying value by trying to they can't use stock because they're trading below book. So Deutsche Bank point three. Standard Chartered point five. You know, HSBC is barely holding on to book value. Uh, and you have these uh, tech companies trading at eight, nine times book. Mm. So they have extremely rich, you know, valued stock, which they can, you know, uh, do stock deals. And so, you know, this is another big problem. Uh, and so these guys, the banks need to wake up and alter their the expectations of shareholders if they're going to keep up. Can they? Can they wake up or is it in their DNA? I mean, it's the shareholders ultimately that will decide, surely, unless you're a very visionary CEO of a bank. Well, I believe there was a tiff uh, with, um, you know, uh, Tucker has come on as executive chairman and he, he's a real visionary yeah. and, a, and, a, and a tremendous thinker and a very, very bright man who turned around AIA. Uh, and I believe there would have been some discussion about um, uh, reducing the dividend. Uh, and I believe that was turned down. Uh, I believe that is a discussion for every uh, every every bank right now. Um, but I think that uh, the 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 answer is probably going to be no. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not optimistic. Yeah. And, and so so overall, the global banks as a group are trading at about 0.9 times book, and the tech group globally is trading at about I would say let's call it six and a half times mm. book. Right, so you're looking at a, a richness which is six x mm. uh, the tech companies compared to the banks. The average market cap is something like thirty five to forty billion for the banks, and the average market cap is north of you know three hundred, mm. two hundred and fifty, three hundred billion. So you're looking at a ten x um, yeah. right in terms of the 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 capex. You know, you're looking at you know the capex is actually pretty small for the banks. Mm. Uh, who are living with a lot of legacy programs, I would say the average, you know, it, it's a big range, but the average is probably one, 900 million, 1 billion. Uh, and then we're talking about, you know, six to 8 billion for the uh, tech companies. Mm -hmm. So these guys have a lot of firepower. And there's two other very important things that banks can't do. One is banks cannot collaborate. It's not in their DNA. They're very, you know, proprietary and client specific and they have proprietary models and they're very private you know they, they they keep everything very private and confidential and number two they're highly regulated because of all the naughty stuff they did 10 years ago 
and the tech companies don't have this. The tech companies are inherently collaborative, right? This mm-hmm. is an inherently collaborative business. And number two, they aren't regulated in the way that the banks are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so they can move a lot. They're a lot more. They, they have more money. They're more uh, energetic. They can collaborate faster and easier. They're, uh, they're, they have greater imagination. They have much more compliant boards. And so there's a lot going for them in this world, which allows them to pull ahead very, very quickly. And as you know, I mentioned in the emerging markets and especially in the frontier markets, which should be like the, the you know, that's the backyard of HSBC mm-hmm. and Standard Chartered, right? That's, that's, that's where they came from 150 years ago. Uh, that they're not a they're not the go-to for a lot of these uh, startups that are doing payments, e-commerce, you know, interesting types of financial technology, insurance, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, rideshare, and so forth. And so, so the go-to people for the startups in Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, Thailand, Africa are the tech companies. They're mm-hmm. not the banks. Which has been, I think, a, a, a great missed opportunity for some of the Commonwealth banks and some of the regional banks as well. Well, let's talk about how that plays out in the the next scenario. Let's talk about the next the next revolution in our credit driven economy. The title of your book, and I mean, as a thought experiment, just take for example Grab here in Singapore. I find it fascinating that a, effectively a taxi or a ride sharing company can become a significant player in in the fintech space, you know, almost through yeah, the back right. door. Yeah, that's right. Right. That's I mean, right. So, so last week I did a presentation to um, the global payments um, uh, a conference in KL. It was a very big, you know, about several hundred people, and I get it. I did the keynote talk, and it was I called it the creature from the black lagoon. <laughs> and, and so what we have are these these, these like nine-eyed, you know, strange creatures that are rising out of the swamp uh, of of new, of new, you know, organisms and new algae and and new new evolutionary, you know, creatures, right? And 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 so so these are the ones that survive in a world where millennials live on their phone and you know they don't use PCs, they don't, you know. Uh, watch television. They don't, you know. Uh, they do their banking at night. They uh, they're they're living in a temporary world of temporary work, temporary living, temporary insurance, you know. And they want it now, and they want it on their phone, and they want it, you know, uh, any way they want it cut up and sliced for them, and they want the breadcrumbs, you know, sliced off their peanut butter and jelly financial products, right? Mm. And, and banks don't aren't there yet, right? And so. What we have is a world where um, a, a rideshare company can suddenly and very quickly gather millions of bank accounts. And I always tell people that like um, Gojek in Indonesia, which is mm. a company that's four years Absolutely. old, has like 12 or I think 12 or 14 million banking bank accounts. Right. And they gathered that in three or four years. Well, it, I'm from California and Bank America, you know, dominates California. Well, it took Bank America 60 years to get 10 million customers, right? Mm-hmm. And these guys can do it, you know, in, um, in you know, 24, 36 months. Alibaba got two, 200 million bank accounts in uh, India with Paytm, mm. right? Overnight, right? Mm. And, and Grab is now 
uh, I think wants to be one of the larger, uh, you know, uh, SME lenders in the region with all the information that it has. And so you have, you know, Grab. And I, I also would would, uh, would would suggest that we need to look at like, you know, um, we need to look at like Tokopedia. Mm. And we need to look at, uh, you know, Paytm. Um, and we need to look at what Amazon is doing in India. Because mm. Amazon, in a very stealthy, quiet way, I just finished all the research yesterday for my clients. You know, Amazon has done amazing kick-ass stuff in, uh, in India where, you know, two years ago they were ridiculed for not being in finance. And, and people were ridiculing Amazon for saying, you should be the biggest bank in the world. Uh, and, and they were flat, they were caught flat-footed by Alibaba. Mm. Now, in two years, I guarantee you, the sweetest stuff they're offering is on an equal footing with Alibaba. In two years, and, wow. and so they've they've done some. They, they've created their own thing. They've they've created, uh, you know, they've created uh, uh, some uh, with you know good stuff with acquisitions as well. Uh, but you know, so. So, so Amazon is a full-fledged financial institution, which offers, and I compared that to the offering on Standard Chartered India's website, and it offers everything and about two times more mm. um, than, uh, than any of the major regional banks. Mm -hmm. and, and, and boy, oh boy, I'm telling you, Amazon's going to do this. And so the Amazon moment for banks arrived in the last six months. I was always skeptical about that, but the Amazon moment has arrived, and Amazon did not do it in America Amazon did it in another country with, you know, one billion people mm. and a very large middle class in India. And I believe uh, Amazon will export that out of India to other emerging markets. And so there's going to be a head on uh, race, a head on battle between Amazon and Alibaba, Do you not think, only in, in that financial services, but also in cloud services, very important cloud services. Well, you talked about exporting. I'm wondering if will they export that? to the developed markets do you think that would be a sandbox for them to well they uh, yeah you know i've heard that i heard that from a amazon person in hong kong and initially i i and that i think that's only on their mind in the last six months mm. but uh look you know if when you see what they did in india man you're gonna say god if you do that in like a chaotic market in like india which exactly. is a fairly you know, immature chaotic market uh, gee, that's going to be pretty easy to do in some of these developed markets. And so I'm going to say, I'm going to say yes. I, I was skeptical six six months ago, but I would say yes. I think they're going to transport that into uh, the West. Plus, there's something else Amazon is doing as well. They're spending an absolute uh, ton of money, you know, up to one billion dollars on a sort of a brand new uh, farm to market infrastructure for mm -hmm. their grocery business. And, and this is a very big deal because this can also be transplanted to other emerging markets. And, and Amazon could solve a pretty significant food problem because, you know, one of the major problems of, of food supply in the world is, in India in particular, one third, 30 percent of all food uh, is wasted mm. before it gets to the market because of um, terrible transportation. Mm. But, you know, what does that future look like, Paul, where you've sort of painted the picture of these i mean if we were to go back to like you mentioned that the you know the, the times of when ge were evolving and emerging the late 19th century for example that this era where you had like the standard oils who owned everything all the way from the barrels down to you know the, the final point of distribution that you have these sort of complete ownership of the value chain in old school 
industrial talk or old school business school talk, the value chain, right? You know, what's it going to look like now, this image where we're going to have these Amazons or Ali, Alibabas or, you know, even a Grab, for example, who own everything in that value chain? Are they all going to co cooperate and coexist? Or, you know, will everybody, every player now have to have a payment system to be valid to, you know, maintain relationships with the customers? How's that going to play out? So, so I think, I think generally when you look at the, um, you mean, when you look at the busting up of the trusts in the early 20th century, uh, there was increasing agitation from unions. There was agitation from activists and from like leftists who like, you know, uh, some of the people who are heroes to the left, like, you know, uh, Ida Tarbell, who did uh, some very good investigative reporting on the abuses of Standard Oil. And, and this stuff gets to Congress and then Congress stops it. And so, so you know, as long as these guys behave, fine. But uh, one of the reasons why the why Amazon has a separate uh, unit, right? The, the the agricultural distribution is a completely separate arm from Amazon's, you know, normal warehouse distribution uh, system, is because the Indian government said you are not going to put that food mm. distribution in your system. So forget it. Uh, we're going to control, you know, food prices, and so you can do it outside your system. That's fine. But it's not going in. And so this is this is where the Indian government is saying we're going to be watching you very carefully to see the entire system of agricultural distribution from farm to market uh, is going to be very uh, visible and very transparent. So so this is a good point. But I'll give another example where somebody's supremacy is being challenged uh, in, in a very profound way. Facebook. Right. Facebook was abusive. It, you know, it, it, it was it, it was all involved in abusive practices for the election uh, and other 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 uh, infractions. And so now it's being, you know, uh, there's discussion of breaking it up and, you know, there's been abuses at Google. And so there's now discussion of breaking it up. So so the police only arrive on the scene when, you know, there's a dead body in the front yard. <laughs> right. The, the, the fire department only comes when there's smoke coming out of the, the roof. So, you know, don't have fires and don't have dead bodies in your front yard and the police won't come. Mm. Right. And so so there, so but but what as you know, we all know, history tells us monopolies tend to get out of control. And so this is that, you know, uh, this is that that, you know, yin yang seesaw mm. of uh, political interference as and when cartels become uh, abusive in pricing. Mm. Or when monopolies get out of control with, you know, uh, poisoned products or abusive products. And so uh, I don't see that happening yet. You know, the, 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 there is a crackdown with Tencent in China mm. because of this. Right. So there are six ministries right now who are cracking down on Tencent because they, they perceive that Tencent is offering a product that's addictive. Mm. Right. It, it's kind of like the opium product of the mm. 1840s. And so. They're saying that adolescents and young adults are becoming addicted to this product that Tencent is offering in the form of gaming. And so that's where Tencent stock price has been clobbered. And so so that's right. So so, so this is where, you know, the government's have to get going to have to get with Tencent. And, and I think there's going to be kind of a, a kind of a black lung thing. I think Tencent's going to have to you know give some money to mm. rehabilitation you know, uh, uh, projects for, uh, people who need, uh, treatment for, um, internet addiction. And mm. so, 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 so that's, these are good examples where, where, uh, history is playing itself out now. Right. And so, so far Alibaba has been pretty good. They haven't been abusive. 
and Amazon has been like going from strength to strength and uh, keeps on, you know, inside the guardrails. And, uh, you know, Google's been, you know, seems to be pretty good. Just, you know, Facebook and Tencent are in the doghouse. You know, Facebook on the election, Tencent mm-hmm. on the um, gaming addiction issue inside China. It's interesting you raise Tencent because one of the criticisms often leveled at Asian players like, for example, Alibaba and Tencent is that they have it easy. Obviously, you know, politics aside and protectionism aside, people often say that, you know, look at the Chinese or the Asian consumer, that they're much happier handing over their information to these companies and those companies, you know, building a profile of them or, you know, monitoring what they do, everything from facial recognition to their financial history and so on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if that was to happen in the West, you know, I'm paraphrasing now, then look at just, you know, look at what happened to Facebook. You know, they can't get away with it, but they're doing this all the time in China. And as a result of that, they have this sort of insight advantage where they're able to build billions of data sets. And as a result of that, you know, through AI, IoT, et cetera, et cetera, they can create better services. So in a way, it's like information protectionism, that this is the criticism leveled of Asian players, that they they have the kind of access to information and ability to use it that only Western companies can dream of. And therefore, you know, they're getting a head on their Western competitors as a result of that. Do you okay, think that's so- fair? No, 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 of course not. Of course not. I, th- I think that narrative that you really nicely articulate is total rubbish. <laughs> uh, uh, let me give you the n- one a couple of data points for God's sake, right? What is the one city in the world that has more cameras per person than any other um, uh, city in the world? London. London. Yeah, exactly. I know. Like, I used to live there, Paul. <laughs> give me a break, right? This yeah. is rubbish, right? So, So if you want to talk about everybody being, you know, uh, you know, surveilled, London is pretty excellent. New York City has cameras every 20 feet. You, everything is surveilled. Your radioactivity levels coming out of the airport are surveilled. Your face is surveilled. Mm. Everything is surveilled in New York City. And so, so, um, and then no, number two, you know, the, the Snowden files, you know, told us uh, something very important. Everything, uh, you know, goes from Apple and Google straight to the NSA and the DIA and all the other agencies, mm. right? Thirdly, uh, another just absolute rubbish argument about the, the connection to the, you know, uh, the armed services and the intelligence communities of, uh, of Alibaba into the Chinese intel community. Come on, right? Who founded, who was the main, you know, hedge fund that founded Google? It's called InQtel. Yeah. That's, that's the hedge fund of the CIA. Who was the main founder, uh, founding, you know, a hedge fund uh, funder of uh, Palantir? It's called InQtel. That's the CIA, right? Uh, don't tell me that there is not a complete. I used to work for the NSC. My first job was with the National Security Council. Don't tell me that the NSC and the NSA and the DIA don't have all this information. I can tell you they do, uh, and, and and a hell of a lot more than any of us can possibly imagine. So I think this, like Asia's, you know, spoiled rotten with information and it's unfair, is just a complete rubbish wrong backward racist narrative mm. that is wrong yeah well put. you know and, and and i think that we need do need to pay real attention to that to what's going on in you know that that the 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 uh the uh the czech you know intel service i can tell you excellent the spanish intel services excellent they have everything the dutch intel services excellent mi6 has everything mi6 has a 
more uh, complete roster of data than the NSA. And the Mossad has some mm. of the best intel in the world. And so, so China does not get the monopoly on abusing uh, private sector, private data. Um, China came very late to the party on this, as a matter of fact. Mm. So, so I'm not defending China. I'm just saying get real about this narrative. Yeah, absolutely. It, there would have been interesting as, as a historical study to look at what kind of narratives were around in the late 19th century when the old world was looking at the new and trying to, in some way, rationalize their competitive advantage, right? You know, that. Of course, exactly. Would have been that, the same, all right? These people in, exactly. All these people in New York, they were white trash. <laughs> they, they were they were they were upstarts and uh, no class. They, they, they were they were they were classless. They're, they're trailer park trash. They don't know what they're doing. How dare they think they can replace the imperial, uh, the UK imperial empire? And, and then, of course, you know, the UK just got into one war after the other yeah. uh, of stupidity, trying to protect a, a dying empire. And you know, after World War One, it was bankrupt. And yeah. um, you know, the U.S. needs to pay attention to the, you know, the the early to mid 20th century lesson of the U.K. that ended up having to go to the IMF in 1954 because it was mm. completely broke uh, by two wars that it, you know, had a role in starting, mm. you know. And so we need to pay attention to that. All right. Well, I haven't asked you yet, but I'm, I'm very curious to find out your thoughts about this, Paul. Is Where are you on blockchain? For those, I mean, you've spent enough of your career that you you can kind of see very top level um view of financial services and how you know what is a fad and what is real where are you what's your sort of position on that and how it's going to impact not just financial services but asia in generally but also in, in the context of you know that without a doubt there's a lot of hype at the moment so what, what's hype and what's reality so, so yeah, so we just did a very large research piece on this uh, two weeks ago for my clients, and we looked at around 45 different now very significant uh, blockchain efforts um, in the private sector. And these, uh, these are in everything. Um, uh, even HSBC is doing, uh, what I, from what I understand, uh, more than a dozen blockchain ongoing projects right now. Uh, and so, so we see blockchain uh, exploding out. I think that you know, from, from a high level, blockchain is ten times more important than the web. I think, first of all, second of all, we need to make very clear distinctions between you know Bitcoin and ICOs and mm -hmm. blockchain. I think ninety-eight percent of ICOs are worthless. Uh, Two percent of them are going to be worth something. Uh, I think Bitcoin is an important part of this, but is separate completely from blockchain. But blockchain is the underlying technology of Bitcoin, but it's it's like I, I compare Bitcoin to emails and blockchain to HTML. You know, mm. blockchain is a protocol. It, it, it's an extremely important protocol, which basically allows any physical thing to become digitalized and therefore as a digital entity, a digital product, a digital asset. Uh, can be used as collateral, and it can be given provenance. And that is the foundation of auctions, and it's the foundation of lending. And that's why uh, blockchain is so vitally important. And uh, again, uh, a lot of the technology companies are have picked up on this you know, several years ago, and the banks are still trying to figure this out uh, because they don't have the systems to this, the safety in their systems in order to digitalize the world. So so everything that moves, everything that is about us, right, can be digitalized. 
I mentioned um, the, the essence of collateral. A digital asset can be a collateral. A digital asset can be a, um, uh, it, can be, it can be given provenance in auction. The third and maybe the most important is human beings can become a digital asset for insurance, right? All of our, the things that we do, insurance is about movement and place and uh, persons and accidents and harm. And so there's no place that, there's no industry that is more susceptible to disruption than traditional insurance mm. uh, because of this. Mm. And so, uh, so these are the three major uses of blockchain. Uh, but lower level, there are currently around 45,000 blockchain products. We need about 4,000. So we need to have a very significant uh, contraction. Mm. Mm. The last thing I would say is something that I pointed out. Uh, there are currently 27 central banks who are engaged in blockchain activity. And the one country that is doing more on blockchain than any other country on the planet, both in terms of the private sector and in the central bank, is China. Last year, China got 70% of all of the patents on blockchain in the world, mm. right? China gets it. China is digitalizing its economy faster than any other economy on Earth. These kinds, kinds of statistics... Uh, like blockchain, quantum computing, quantum communications scares the hell out of the U.S. Mm -hmm. because the U.S. has woken up last year and I think had a strategic uh, uh, meltdown, a strategic you know freakout uh, because it realized it was behind and and that's behind all the bellicose language of the U.S. right now with China. Mm -hmm. The U.S. is very threatened by China in these types of technologies. How is that possible? What is it? that's driving that when you mentioned 70 percent of all patent applications filed by chinese companies or chinese organizations what is behind that is it the fact that they have less of an established infrastructure or is something else hey man they're really smart <laughs> <laughs> and guess what they guess guess you guess you mr trump never got never filled the office i was in the nsc right there's the national security council there's the Economic Policy Council. There's the uh, Office of Science and Technology Office. There's a Science and Technology Council. Those are the three councils that inform the president. Donald Trump doesn't like science. He doesn't like technology. Mm. He doesn't like advancement. He wants to talk to his base. He wants to throw red meat at uh, a middle class base that is panicking about being pushed out of the job market. And he's not giving any solutions. He's giving. Um, he's you know turning everybody into a victim. China is doing the opposite. China is aggressively, actively embracing these technologies because it knows it's really important. And they have really, really smart people in the NDRC and the CBRC and the CIRC and the PBOC who are on this, you know, 24-7. And I've been to briefings where these people are in, I, I, I did a briefing two weeks ago in Shanghai. Everybody was in that room from nine to five and nobody left and yeah. everybody paid attention from nine to five. They went for lunch, they came back at 1.30 and they were ready to go. And nobody disappeared in the afternoon. Hmm. They're focused like a laser on this. There is a focus and a national attention that is part of some of these times in history when everything's clicking, you know? And I, I feel like I kind of grew up in that, you know, uh, Pax Americana that I don't know mm. what happened to that. But that's mm. gone away. And the last thing I would say on that is there's a really good book everybody should read 
Uh, it's a book about a, uh, a guy uh, from Oxford, and he went around China by himself during a very dangerous time in the 1930s in, in China. And, and he cataloged all of the inventions of China before all of the, you know, the infrastructure and the paper and the stuff in universities was destroyed because uh, he felt like a war was coming. And so he cataloged uh, all the inventions that China has made in the last, you know, 3,000 years. And in the back of the book, there's about 30 pages of inventions. And, and th there's very little about the world today that was not invented mm -hmm. by China, you know, 2,000 years ago. So, so China's coming out of 150 years of political, military, economic chaos, and has only, you know, awoken to the world in the last, you know, 20 years. And so, you know, we need to pay attention to this legacy called, you know, China that's been around for a long, long time that invented, you know, cement, paper, chemistry, biology, reflexology, right, phrenology, uh, the blood system, uh, you know, uh, on and on and on and on, the wheelbarrow, right? Um, you know, uh, um, homeopathic medications, um, you know, all kinds of, of medicines. Um, and so, so, so we need to pay attention to a country that traditionally has been, you know, offering staggering amounts of, of, of developments in mm. technology, metallurgy, uh, construction, architecture, uh, biology, chemistry, and so forth. And so, so uh, blood systems, you know, um, so, so we just need to pay attention to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this whole sort of narrative of this China being an innovative country it's not new, is it? As we're saying, this has been going on for thousands of years. Maybe, as you point out, that they've just had a bit of a break due to political and economic reasons, but they're back. Well, the whole country was the whole country was addicted to opium for right. you know sixty years. That that, that didn't help, uh, right? And so, and the book is called "The, the Man Who Loved China." Excellent mm. book. I would highly recommend it. Well, that's a great recommendation, Paul Schulte, everybody from Schulte Research. Paul, it's been a real privilege. I really enjoyed that journey through Asia and the financial technology world and also what's going to happening next by looking back at what happened before. I think there's some really interesting parallels, aren't there? And that's always sort of a good job of an observer and an analyst is to show people where often the patterns repeat in history as well, in human yeah, behavior yeah. as well. And that often and, gives us a lot of clarity. Yeah, thank you. And excellent questions and an excellent uh, you know, uh, conversation. I really enjoyed it. Paul, where's the best place for people to find you? uh schulte research all right dot com yeah excellent we'll put all the details in the show notes okay you've been listening to asia tech podcast find out more at atp.show